are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, and we'll be looking together at chapter 12. You'll find this on page 970 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading verses 2 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. Hear the word of God. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Well, in this particular chapter, in his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul is defending the legitimacy and the authority of his apostolic office. There were some in Corinth, apparently, who questioned his apostleship, or at least demeaned it. And here he refers to some of his credentials for his apostolic ministry. And it's interesting that he speaks in the third person, as if he's unwilling to identify himself. And I think this was an expression of humility, given the greatness of the vision that he was given. He says that he was caught up to the third heaven, which in and of itself is absolutely astounding. God brought Paul temporarily into heaven, the heaven which we cannot see. This is where the Most High God and the holy angels and the glorified saints dwell. And one who was given such a privilege might be tempted to boast. You can imagine how that might be a temptation. It was only after 14 years with some reluctance that he was forced to mention it. And God made sure that this privilege would not become a snare for the Apostle Paul. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Because nothing like this had ever been experienced by any of God's people. So exalted was the honor that the apostles' sin had to be checked. And he refers to the third heaven here as if it was something familiar to his readers. Now, in the Jewish way of thinking, there were three distinct heavens. There was the first heaven, which is Earth's atmosphere, the one in which the birds fly, according to Genesis 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is outer space, inhabited by the sun, the moon, and the stars. According to Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. That's heaven number two. The third heaven, of course, is the highest heaven. 
the one inhabited by God and the saints and the holy angels. Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. So though God is everywhere present, he is present in heaven in a very special way. That's where he manifests his glory most clearly and most fully and most splendidly, by the way. And so Paul equates the third heaven here with paradise, which is an allusion, of course, to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, verse 8, God says he planted a garden in Eden. Now, it's interesting in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that particular verse, which said in our translation, God planted a garden in Eden, says God planted a paradise in Eden. The idea that this was the place from which Adam and Eve were driven because of their sin, the blessed place, the perfect place. And angelic sentries with a flaming sword were stationed to guard the entrance back into paradise. And of course, as you know, at the cross, Jesus endured that sword of justice and reopened the way back in. It's the place of solid joys, of lasting treasure. It's the place of pure blessedness. And so 14 years prior to writing this particular letter, Paul was somehow caught up to this third heaven. How it happened, we don't know. Paul himself doesn't even seem to know. All he can say is that he found himself in the place where God is most clearly displayed in his glory. And he says he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And notice he doesn't mention the things that were seen. If it were me, I think I would have marveled over things that were seen. But he said the things which were heard. In other words, the things heard apparently were more amazing even than the things that he saw. And so sublime were those things that they were unrepeatable. They were secret things that belong not to man but to God. No human language really is fully adequate to express the matters of the third heaven. And so we're left here with the bare basics of Paul's ex extraordinary experience and even though he could not repeat what he heard, the Bible does say something about heaven. Indeed, Scripture describes heaven with the most beautiful and stirring imagery. Its blessedness consists of everlasting life in pure joy and absolute holiness. And heaven is something to which almost everyone aspires, but relatively few obtain. And that's because narrow is the way and straight is the gate. And in the time that remains, I'd like us to consider the nature of heaven. It is a location prepared by God that has a spatial dimension. It can be located, in other words. In some way, it occupies space. It's three-dimensional. Jesus said in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms I go to prepare a place for you. It's spatial. It has to be spatial because this is where the resurrected Christ now dwells bodily. He ascended visibly and he is now in heaven spatially. And the disciples watched as his body ascended from the earth to heaven. And it wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. It was Christ 
locally transferred into the third heaven. Acts chapter 1, the angels said, This Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Christ's exaltation is not only a change of state, but it's also a change of place. And that is now the great theater of his ongoing work of intercession. In heaven, he's pleading for us. And it's also where disembodied souls reside in the intermediate state. Do you remember how Jesus told the story of the rich man in Lazarus? He said in Luke 16, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And his soul did not die, but now exists in a state of separation from his body. And notice his soul was escorted into heaven by the angels as ministering spirits. So the third heaven is where the penitent thief went when he died. Jesus told him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The greatest joy of life in heaven will be that Christ Jesus is there. He's with us now by his spirit. He's with us by his ordinances. But when we're in heaven, we'll be with him bodily. Paul says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Here we can't see his face. We can't observe his scars. We can't really behold his glory. But the day will come when you and I will see him face to face, and that's what the older theologians used to call the beatific vision, the blessed vision. And heaven will be where all the resurrected saints will live eternally in bodily form. The very same body in which we suffered and died will be glorified. And will be equipped at that point to enjoy all the privileges of the eternal world. Job said, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Somehow he knew that he would be in heaven. And there's plenty of room in heaven for the vast multitude of glorified saints. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, emphasizing the vast number of them. So there's no such thing as standing room only. Everyone has a place. And mind you, it's reserved. There will be enough room for a company that nobody can number. There is enough mercy in God and enough merit in Christ and enough might in the Holy Spirit to save and to house an innumerable host. And God built this heaven with the entire multitude of the redeemed in mind. How do I know that? Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus says this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So from the very beginning, God designed for the assembly one that's so big that nobody can calculate the third heaven. It's also a place of eternal rest for everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation 14 that a voice from heaven said, the dead who die in the Lord may rest from their labors. This life for many of us is full of labor, toil, exhaustion, 
Oftentimes you grow weary, and so do I. And at times you might even be too tired to sleep, if you can think about that. Mothers of young children come to mind and ask sometimes, is there no rest for the weary? But three times in two chapters, the apostle quotes Psalm 95 to describe heaven, Hebrews 3. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now that's negative about the unbelievers, but the positive is implied. There is a rest. And from the beginning, the aim has been for glorified man to enter God's rest. It is a state of total relief from pain, total relief from toil and earthly weariness. We're told in Hebrews 4 that whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And in heaven, the immortal saints never grow weary but enjoy perfect peace. Stress, fatigue, exhaustion are completely absent and unknown. There is perfect tranquility, peace and serenity and everlasting joy. And it's also a place of absolute, unmixed and everlasting blessedness. Again, Revelation 14, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. The psalmist in 16 tells us that it's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Try to wrap your head around that. It's impossible for you and I to exaggerate the unmixed pleasure and the absolute delight of the third heaven. Just as the pains of hell are indescribable, the joys of heaven are beyond human words. This light momentary affliction, Paul says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. (laughs) There's nothing to compare it to. And all the elect as one body and Christ's bride will be admitted into the presence of God. According to Jonathan Edwards, we shall eat and drink abundantly and swim in the ocean of love. And in heaven, the fellowship of the saints will be perfected and unchangeable. And we will know each other. We'll recognize everyone. There will be no strangers in heaven. And this will be one of heaven's greatest joys, the reunion of beloved saints. You'll know your loved ones. You will know your family and your friends and your fellow workers who died in the Lord. We might think of an imaginary woman who is dying who asks her husband, will you know me in heaven? And in answer, her loving husband says to her, will I know you? Why, I've known you intimately for 54 years while I've been here, and do you think I'll know less when I get to heaven? Of course I'll know you. So much of heaven's happiness will be in fellowship with one another. As David said, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. No earthly distinctions, no one superior to another, perfect love. Again, to quote Edwards, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. Our hearts will be turned inside out. There will be perfect unity, sweet harmony, absolute beauty, and abiding joy. 
People sometimes wonder and they ask me if the saints in heaven can see what goes on here on earth. According to the Bible, part of their joy is seeing God's mercy to the church on earth. Isn't that what it means in Luke 15, 7? There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So the repentance and conversion of a sinner here is the matter of joy among the saints and angels there. Indeed, angels, were told, long to look into the outworking of the gospel of Christ. And as they do, seeing what's happening here, they're instructed about the gospel through the work of the church. Now, would the joy among angels be withheld from the glorified saints? Of course not. If believers on earth can rejoice over the conversion and repentance of a sinner, why would we lose that privilege in heaven? Think about it. The glorified saints enter into the riches of their inheritance. Well, what is the inheritance of the glorified saint? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if in heaven you inherit the earth, will you not see and enjoy your inheritance? Oh, how the great cloud of witnesses rejoices in the gospel triumphs. They're watching us now, that great cloud of witnesses. And the saints in heaven will also behold the horrific suffering of the damned in hell. And I realize how difficult that is to hear. It's difficult for any of us to appreciate that, but it is part of the eternal world. Paul says, let no one boast in men because all things are yours. All things are yours. And the all things mentioned by Paul has to include hell within its scope. Did not Lazarus and Abraham behold the rich man in his agony? Did not Isaiah predict that the righteous will observe the wicked in chapter 66 when he wrote, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. As we've said before in our series on hell, hell is made more for the spectators than it is for the participants. The damned will serve the glory of God's justice and the joy of God's saints. And those in torment will help exalt the name of Christ and enhance the happiness of his followers. And believers will rejoice in the glory of divine justice as much as they rejoice in the glory of divine grace. They're both attributes of God. And such joy in heaven will not consist in glutting a sinful spirit of revenge. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not the sadistic pleasure because all the punishment that goes on in hell will be deserved. On earth, there may be cruel and wicked people who rejoice in the unjust suffering of others. But in heaven, the glorified saints will rejoice only in the just punishment of the wicked. We will rejoice in seeing God's attribute of justice magnified, and it will be joy over the vindication of God's name over his enemies. Perfectly sanctified souls, think of it, 
will celebrate the Lord's perfect justice. This is what sustained the Jews for thousands of years of persecution. There's coming a day when his justice will be glorified. And in heaven, you and I will love what God loves and will hate what God hates. So the Lord Jesus, when he was teaching, alluded to the joy of heaven in his parable of the wedding feast. He said various people gave excuses for absenting themselves from the great celebration. The king had prepared this fantastic banquet and the wedding hall would be filled with guests. And that's why Paul writes, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine. And yet, these things God has revealed to you and I through his spirit. So I want you for a minute, just momentarily, to think of the best, most joyful experience on earth that you've ever had. I know it's hard to think, but the best, most joyful experience you've ever had. And that's just a very small foretaste of what lies ahead. Sinai's majesty, Zion's glory, the conversion's joy, worship's excitement. These, the joy associated with them doesn't even compare with the joy of heaven. It will be a glorious celebration that will never, ever end. It'll go on forever. And the joys of heaven, they'll never be static. They'll, they will forever increase. We're told in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There are different degrees of glory. And we'll always be advancing in our knowledge and our enjoyment of God, who is infinite. And there will be fresh discoveries of his infinite glory and blessedness. There will be ever new and joyful experiences of the other glorified saints. New beauty will be cited. New pleasures will be realized. New delights will be enjoyed. And every faculty of soul and body, remember these are glorified, will be perfected inlets of liquid joy. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion, always learning about God, always realizing new potentialities, ever increasing in holiness and sharing in that glorious, eternal, Trinitarian fellowship. And at the same time, and I have to add this, always viewing hell, which will intensify our gratitude because the pleasure and the pain of saints and sinners will be heightened by one another. Saints will grow fuller in joy as the damned will grow worse in misery. And the remembrance of our own expiated sins will only increase our happiness. What a great salvation. It will deepen our gratitude for grace and strengthen our esteem for Christ. And one other important aspect about heaven is the fact that it's glorious. You know, theologians tell us that there is a threefold presence of God. There is his essential presence. He's everywhere. 
There is his gracious presence. He's among the saints, especially in the services of worship, his gracious presence. And there is his glorious presence, which is peculiar to heaven. And the brightness and the splendor of God's glory is for us utterly unfathomable. The Lord's greatness, says the psalmist, is unsearchable. And you and I will spend eternity exploring and enjoying the vast ocean of his glory. And that which makes our enjoyment possible is the union with Christ. By his incarnation, the distance between the two natures, divine and human, was overcome. He has two natures in one person, divine and human. And by the shedding of his blood, he's removed every obstacle to our intimate fellowship with the Father. We are fully reconciled to God. We're accepted in his presence. All that has to happen is death, the portal to heaven. And then we'll be able to see our glorified Redeemer with our own eyes. And so powerful will be this vision that it will literally transform us. Beloved, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This was Job's abiding hope, even in the lowest depths of his suffering, remember? In my flesh, I shall see God, and it's one of the most thrilling and soul-satisfying aspects of heaven. The damned will see the fury of his frown and the terror of his majesty and the glory of his wrath, but the saints will see the sweetness of his smile and the beauty of his face and the splendor of his glory. The contrast couldn't be more stark. And so bright will be the reflection that our luminosity will be brilliant. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, 43. Finally, and perhaps the best aspect of heaven will be that it's eternal. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, Jesus says, cannot die anymore. The last enemy, death, will be conquered and eternal life will be our privilege. The sinners hope that immortality is not true, but the saints rejoice that it is immortal. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And we're not told explicitly what eternity is, but the Bible holds it forth as something wonderful. The things that are seen, we're told, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So life in heaven lasts forever, and it is worthy of our diligent pursuit. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, said David, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Don't you see that there is plenty of room for every sinner who repents and believes? And God invites you and I simply to put our trust in Christ and we can enjoy heaven. He established this life as the opportunity for us to choose heaven or hell. Gerstner says our fleeting moments here determine where our eternity will be spent. It has often been said that heaven is in the saint before the saint is in heaven. What possible reason could there be offered for rejecting 
this offer. Why would anybody delay in accepting the free gift of eternal life? The nature of heaven is so wonderful that nothing should stand in our way. May God enable all of us to take advantage of this offer. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the way that you've revealed to us even the bare bones of the third heaven. We thank you for the experience of the Apostle Paul, and we know that it's glorious, and we pray that you will keep us by your power through faith unto a salvation that is being reserved for us at the last day. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.